Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Welcome to Law in the Family, where we discuss issues and topics related to the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. I'm Aaron Weems, a family law attorney in Fox Rothschild's Bluebell Montgomery County office. And with me today is one of my colleagues and good friends, Mark McCreary. Mark is an expert in privacy and data security and has served as Fox Rothschild's co-chair of that practice group. Mark manages the data security for the firm and has been practicing the field for over 20 years. I have Mark here today to talk about chat GPT and artificial intelligence. Mark, welcome to the podcast again as our first official recurring guest. Aaron, thank you. Very glad to be back, especially for a topic like this that's going to have such an impact on our practices. So that's interesting. You should say it's going to have such an impact because I think a lot of people don't necessarily know yet what this is and how it could also be a tool and as well as possibly something to be concerned about. Can you give us a little bit of background into what this artificial intelligence is, particularly this product chat GPT, and what use it may have for practicing attorneys? Sure. So, I mean, artificial intelligence is a very large term. Probably gets thrown around a little bit more loosely than it should, but it it currently permeates our everyday lives. Many of us just don't realize it. It's when computer programming comes together in such a way so that it can almost think on its own and reach conclusions without a lot of human interaction uh, on a very broad level. From a daily point of view, you know, the largest AI instance in the world is Google search. A lot of people don't think about it that way, but it absolutely is artificial intelligence. Uh, We all refer to it as Google's algorithms, but that is AI. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask Google why it comes out with some of the answers and some of the results that it does, Google has no idea. They really don't know because a lot of the training has occurred over the years in a way that it wasn't humans telling the search bots what to do. Uh, It trained itself based upon data that was input into it. On a more personal level and a more entertaining level, everything from YouTube and Amazon and Netflix is based upon artificial intelligence. Whether you go to YouTube and it amazingly tells you exactly what videos you want to watch. I'm a big YouTube person and I'm impressed that it knows what I want to watch. And putting aside the whole echo chamber risk of all that, it's actually pretty good at telling me, here's more content that you may be interested in. Amazon is pretty good at knowing what I may be looking to buy next based upon past searches. And that's a computer telling Amazon that, not Amazon employees telling Amazon that. And then Netflix, it's kind of the same thing. We think based upon your watch history and what you've enjoyed, you're 98% likely to watch this movie and enjoy it. Uh, We see it with Siri and Alexa and Google, where the information that comes back comes back in a very prompt manner and a very oratory manner, if you will. It's very good when they actually speak to us and may not always get it right. But AI is driving that. And we see it with self-driving cars with Waymo. Uh, We may not see that as often as we see in certain cities. We see it much more often than other cities. But it's really what's out there right now. And so it is already surrounding our lives. In the legal industry, we actually do have some tools out there already. They focus a lot on e-discovery, a lot of AI-powered search, so it'll do legal search for us. A lot of contract and legal document analysis, proofreading, error correction, document organization, all that's done by AI systems that are currently commercially available for law firms for those that are using it. I will say it's probably in its nascent stage right now. It's a good tool. It's not something to be relied upon, but it's something that, you know, it's really helpful for the attorney to have a good start 
nowhere to look. It is by no means, knock on wood, replacing lawyers at this point, but there certainly are tools out there that are helpful. And then finally, we come to ChatGPT, which probably a lot of us have heard about in the news recently. Not sure exactly what it is or what's behind it, but that has become the most consumer-facing open AI provided tool that we see right now where it's pretty impressive. I mean, if you were to play around with it, it, it's really interesting. And I think it's really led us to a place in society where a lot of people don't like to say it out loud, but what's happening with AI right now, I don't think anybody that pays attention to it's gonna disagree with a statement of everything's about to change. It's really gonna become a different environment based upon these technologies. So let's talk a little bit about the chat GPT for a second, because you talked about how Google is a search engine and a an art, artificial intelligence in a way. What differentiates chat GPT from something like Google, where I could kind of type in a question and it goes, what's, what's the differences in utility? Several. <laughs> it's really kind of impressive, actually. So think about Google for a minute, boil it down to what it is. You put in a search term and it returns to you literally millions of hits where you choose what is really important. You probably choose maybe the first three, five, seven pages to then conclude your answer. I've gotten information from different sources. They seem to match up in these ways. I have a reasonable level of confidence that that is the right answer. With ChatGPT, you put in the same search term and it gives you an answer that it is confident is the right answer. And because of the way it comes back, because of how quickly it comes back and because of the content that's actually there, it's like talking to a human. We tend to believe that it's, that's right. Oh, well, you're pretty confident that's right. Then I'm going to believe that's the case. Unfortunately, especially this early with the technology, it's often wrong. And, it, and by the way, ChatGPT will have several notices that pop up warning you that sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we don't have the best information. The information is limited up to, I think it's November or September of 2021. So it's not current, but it delivers it in such a way that the confidence it gives in its answers is infectious. It really feels like that's the way that that's the correct answer. Uh, the other problem with it is what becomes very dangerous is bias. You have, like I said, use the Google example. You may find that there's bias in your sources, whether they're CNN or Fox News or whatever you want to use for an example. And we as smart, educated people can filter out that bias to some extent. We don't know where the answer that came out of GTP, GPT came from. What we do know is that it was trained by Reddit, for example, which is a interesting place, in many ways, extremely racist and violent. And depending on what chat group you're in in Reddit, it's not the kind of source you want training these things, but it was a wonderful source of content to train an AI tool. And there's other sources that it came from, including popular media, uh, Wikipedia. There's a lot of good sources that go into it. But the point is, just because it's taking human knowledge as the base point, it's going to have bias built into it. On top of that, what made ChatGPT different than the other similar text-based uh, sources from before or a word, what word comes next sources from before was that humans really trained it much more closely than any of the others. So for example, it would ask chat GPT a question. It would say, give us three answers. And then a human would say, this is the right answer. So there's certain bias that's built into that human to begin with, where that information is actually going to be a little bit misleading of what's accurate because a human is doing the training. So there's some real dangers with it. And it's what differs. That's what differs from a Google search, for example. Now, one more thing, Aaron, I should point out with ChatGPT, and this is changing with Bing's solution when Microsoft Bing is doing it, there's no sources. You don't really know where it came from. So you're just left with an answer with no way to fact check it. That's a good point, because who has put out ChatGPT at this point? 
Who's behind that? Sure. It's a company called OpenAI. OpenAI is a really interesting company. They've done really impressive things. In July of 2019, Microsoft actually gave a billion dollar investment into them. And recently that investment went to an additional $10 billion this past January. So it's a company that their sole goal and, and purpose has been to build ChatGPT. And when Microsoft is using the technology for their Bing searches, they're using the technology of ChatGPT and the internet combined to return its resources. So right now there's really two primary resources with a third on the horizon. The first is you or I go to ChatGPT on the web which is just go to you know openai.com and you can be there, openai.com. Or we see it in Microsoft's tool where it gets embedded into that. And then finally, OpenAI has been very clear that they're going to start licensing this technology through APIs, which are interfaces between a third party's product or solution and chat GPT, so they speak to each other. So it will be powering some other solutions. It could be legal solutions, for example. It could be dating advice websites that you really don't know, but it's really open-ended of what they can do with it. But the sole purpose of all this, besides the innovation, is they're here to make money. That's maybe a, a good place to go next, because you did mention a little bit about you'd have a product and maybe are you referring to maybe a chat box that would pop up? And now that chat box asking what you need at the, you know, for, at the car dealership website is going to be able to utilize open source artificial intelligence to help drive Whatever the answer is, is that is that sort of the commercialization of it a little bit? It, it is. So again, keep in mind where we started. There's a lot of AI in the world. It's not all ChatGPT. But what ChatGPT is, its sole purpose and all it does, you boil it all down, all it does is guess what word comes next in a sentence, in a conversation, in an answer. All it's doing based upon training by humans and with human data is guessing what word comes next. So if we're just doing a simple, I need help buying a car, yes, that's going to be the kind of technology that's going to go into it. If we need to get closer to self-driving or technologically evasive driving that does it all through the car itself, that is AI, but that's much more code-driven. That's much more you know, engineering-driven, if you will. So there's all kinds of AI across the, uh, across the spectrum when it comes to development with it. In the legal industry, I think it's two things. One... I think it's, we all know how much case law is out there, how much history is out there. It's managing to find that information in a better way than Westlaw does. And, and by the way, Westlaw is developing their own AI tools. But it really is not just feed me all these cases that have these citations in it or these headers, but really sum them up. Tell me how they're different. Tell me why it's important. Tell me on this fact pattern, really what the best argument is for me to make to the judge. That's one level of it. I think the other level is the reasoning part, is actually going through and doing the legal analysis, not just finding the case law, but actually analyzing the case law and spitting out an answer. That's the attorney's job. And I, I have no doubt we're heading toward that being developed. I don't think there's any bar in this state that's going to allow that to replace lawyers, but it sure as hell is going to allow it to supplement lawyers. And the way I view it, is that, you know, I do not believe AI is going to replace lawyers. I think lawyers that use AI are going to replace lawyers that don't use AI. All right. So along those lines, you've got a practicing lawyer, big firm, small firm, everywhere in between. They can look to use artificial intelligence, I mean, beyond just what Westlaw can do. So Westlaw, you plug in your search parameters, you're going to get a case, you read the case, you analyze it. What you're saying is that this tool, you can now pose a question to it. And you're going to be able to get a response that has some degree of analysis, some degree of foundation in the law that you could look at and say, hey, that looks pretty close or that is correct. And 
it sounds like some of the risk would be that you're basically almost using the Wikipedia of law to try to come up with an answer. And, and how dire of a situation or how, how dangerous is that to have available to lawyers who are maybe looking for a shortcut or are taking the shortcut? This is all very new, but there's one famous example out there where a reporter asked ChatGPT to name three noteworthy opinions by Ruth Bader Ginsburg and to summarize them. And it spit out three opinions, uh, summarized them very well. But in the first instance, it said that she gave the dissenting opinion, and that wasn't the case. She gave the concurring opinion, and it was wrong. But because it said Ginsburg wrote a dissenting opinion in this case in which the Supreme Court ruled, blah, 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 if the attorney is not doing her job and checking that, it's wrong. It's not a dissenting opinion. It's a concurring opinion. So I think the risk really is twofold. One, you're going to have the lazy lawyer. The lawyer that says, I don't want to write that brief. I don't want to write that demand note. I don't want to write that letter to opposing counsel and just goes with whatever gets spit out with very little oversight. That's malpractice. I mean, that's dangerous. It's a bad position for us to be in. I'm hoping that is a vast minority of people, but people get lazy sometimes and they do make bad decisions. I think another concern with it is they don't treat it for what it is, at least at this stage, which is a first draft. They come to it and they think that the information that's in there is correct. They may do their own analysis based upon what comes back, but they're not actually checking the content that comes back. To say that differently, I think we can all agree if Westlaw comes back and tells you, you know, this is who the dissenting author was, we know that's true. And if it's wrong, it was Westlaw. We have a pretty good basis for based upon, uh, you know, agreeing with that and going with that. Here, not only do you get the information back, you also have to take the step and go make sure it's correct. So I keep referring to it as a first draft. It's a place to start. It's a jumping on point where you take what comes back. If it's good, you work with it, but you got to fact check it. So I think there's two different levels. One is the attorney that just takes whatever comes out and sends it out. The other is the attorney that takes what comes out and doesn't actually go and make sure that it's correct. When you talk about how these things are built and how they're trained by humans, I guess another way of putting it, I mean, a lot of this information is just what we are putting out there. So is it possible that the artificial intelligence is pulling in part or in some form or fashion a blog post that somebody writes on a particular legal issue and they're incorporating that into their analysis and their response? So even if that is bad ingredients in gets a bad product out, is that part, is that in part some of the risk that you have? Yeah, so that's a very good example, because if you do the Google search and you come across the blog entry, you know it's a blog entry. You know, you, you put a little bit of sus suspicion on it. You know you want to double check it. It's not coming from Thomson Reuters or the New York Times. It's coming from somebody that can post to a blog versus that information get kicks, kicked out through ChatGPT or Google's competitor, Bard. All you see is the answer. You don't see the source. So there's definitely risk with that. And, and I think I, I should take a step back because th there has to be a level of reality here. I don't think any lawyer in the near distant future, maybe today just to play around with it, but in the near distant future is going to use chat GPT really on a heavy basis because we don't know those sources. I also think that there are going to be several tools that are going to be released. Again, Case Note has its own coming out right now that's being tested and being offered to law firms now. Those are going to be much more reliable simply because the source of the data is better and it's going to tell you where the information came from. So I, I do want there to be a reality check. Nobody's going to be using chat GPT to practice law in the near future uh, or to even get really detailed information. But there are going to be several tools that come after chat GPT that are going to be much more reliable. So um, when we're talking about even the use in any form or fashion by a lawyer, 
What do you think your responsibilities are to disclose to your client that you're using this as a tool? I think it's a tough question. Matter of fact, I just spent a little bit of time late last week writing an update to our engagement letter to disclose it. And I think there, there's a couple levels to it. One is I think there should be some disclosure. Again, we didn't disclose we use Google before because it's become such a common use and it's lower risk because the sources are right there. But if I'm using an AI tool to help me write a brief or to do legal research or to draft contracts, I do think there needs to be some level of disclosure, not necessarily specific, but a level of disclosure to the client that that's happening. And coupled with that, there has to be the opportunity for the client to say, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you using those tools. I understand there's a cost savings and there may even be an intellectual benefit to doing that, but I don't trust them. I don't think they're appropriate at this time. And when they get uh, mature, I may change my mind. So I think lawyers should be prepared to have clients that come back and say, why don't we you know, pump the brakes on that for right now and, and maybe look at that later? On the other hand, you're also going to have clients that get really excited about you using AI because instead of doing a four-hour contract draft, you may be doing a 30-minute contract draft with a one-hour review. So I think it, it's balanced. The cherry on top of all that, where I think some lawyers are going to get in trouble, is lawyers like to bill that four hours to draft that contract, and they're used to billing that four hours to draft that contract. They're going to have to be very aware of what they're doing when it comes to billing time because they can't bill four hours if it took an hour and a half. Right. And I mean, to me, that seems like one of the bigger concerns is where when you have lawyers trying to be efficient, trying to maximize their day, that's going to be really tempting to some people. I, I know that even in the pandemic, we had there were some that were you know that lamented that they didn't have the the travel time for hearings and things like that. Zoom made the practice of law in some respects more efficient. This sounds like it, it could kind of have a similar concern. You're you know you simply can't bill for four hours on what took you an hour and a half and not think you won't come under some scrutiny. I, th I think that's a really good example. The lost travel time, if you will. And I don't think many lawyers miss the travel, but they probably do miss the billables. So I think it, it can be a real benefit for everybody. The client can get a smaller bill. They can get to their answer more quickly. The lawyer can find ways that they can use it in a manner that actually makes them more confident in their answer if they use the right tools. But I think that that balance has to be found. And we're all, you know, we, we live and, and breathe in an environment that's ethically bound. And I don't have a real concern with the profession doing the right thing. I think there may be some bad actors, but there always were. And so I think we're just going to have to navigate it together and figure out what the right approaches are. I, I will say, Aaron, I do think there's an interesting question because your listeners spend a lot of time in court. Unlike me, I do not spend time in court. I think it's be curious to know what needs to be disclosed to the judge. So if there's AI being used to come up with certain work product or conclusions Depending on the level of reliance, I think there is a conversation about whether that needs to be a judge-had conversation. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before, but we have certain rules that we have to follow when it comes to our expert witnesses and the materials that they review in preparation of their testimony. And I think certainly you can make the argument that on a legal issue, disclosing whether or not that expert or anyone or a fact witness relied upon artificial intelligence to help inform themselves on the issue. I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, and I would take it one step further, even to the extent you have judges that are listeners. I think those judges have some certain obligation on themselves to become familiar with the technology and what's out there. And, you know, we, we like to talk about the risks because that's kind of the scary stuff. That's what you want to watch out for. The benefits are fantastic. I mean, they really are. It's, it's efficiency. It's accuracy. It's having at your fingertips some level of reasoned results that come back instead of, like I said before, 
a million hits on Google. There's some real benefit to that. Now, again, you can't ignore the risk. You can't ignore, it cannot replace the practice of law. It, you have to account for bias. You can only treat it as a first draft, at least at this stage. But let me put it this way. At our firm, the policy that I ended up with was, look, if you want to use it, use it. We encourage you to use it for the reason I said before. I think lawyers that use AI are going to do better. But we all have to be smart about it. We can't all get excited and just kind of go off at the hip with it and end up doing things that we wouldn't do, if you will, in the real world, you know, allowing AI to do our job in ways that are not ethically appropriate. You know, in, uh, in pre- preparing for this, first, I had the benefit of listening to your firm-wide seminar on it, which was which was fascinating and extremely informative, having not encountered chat GPT before. But then it, I immediately went there and started playing around with it and uh, plugged in the question, create a podcast question outline for a lawyer who is studying artificial intelligence. And I'll we'll post this in the show notes, but it came up with a very thorough outline just based on that search parameter you know, covering understanding AI, legal implication of AI, ethical considerations of AI, and then a conclusion. Very, I mean, it, and this took me all of one minute. And I view something like that as a good example of sort of the non-legal analysis, you know, legal adjacent, so to speak. Things that we're doing to try to help inform our practices, help inform the work that we do for our clients, but isn't getting into the place in which we are really where we have the rules of professional ethics that we need to be cognizant of. You know, for all intents and purposes, that was a marketing exercise in a way. You know, we're having this discussion on a podcast. You know, those are the types of things that I think it could be useful for. You know, you talked a little bit about the legal products that may come out of this. Is there anything else in the future that we might, you know, that we should be aware of or that you see coming down the pike that would be interesting for us to know? Yeah, I mean, look, nobody knows where we are with this. No clue. Is this the beginning? Is this the middle? Is this near the end? I personally think we're at a little bit past the beginning, but not anywhere near the middle. And again, I I am not a a melodramatic person. I think this is going to change everything. I think anybody under the age of 40 grew up with the internet and people like you and me, Aaron, we knew a time before the internet existed. Like you said before, you know, probably 25 years ago, we weren't even really using email, but we were aware of it. Think how much everything has changed. Social media, email, the internet, the phones in our pockets, the cars that we drive. It's amazing how much technology had changed it. And not a lot of it was predictable by people like you and me. We didn't see it coming. This is one we, we see it coming. We, we're right and we're witnesses to it. We're seeing it happen right now. We control the conversation. And I have a lot of concerns with the companies that are involved. I mean, take Google, for example. Do you think they're a little bit freaked out right now because Microsoft now has a chance to make Bing happen? They are. I mean, they're absolutely terrified. And so we saw them roll out a product very quickly that was clunky and dumb, and they they embarrassed themselves, basically. And the reason they did that was because they didn't want to lose their search share, their marketing share, advertising share, because that's how they make their money. I am very concerned that these companies are going to roll this stuff out too fast without the appropriate guardrails in the interest of the almighty dollar that we're going to be the ones training the AI, that it's going to make horrible statements and conclusions and do things that properly trained it would have never done. And we're going to have to live with that. I I think that's what's going to happen. And I think it's a shame, but I do think the world's going to change. I really do. I don't think we can predict what's going to happen. And again, I'm not saying, you know, everything's going to melt, but I do think careers are going to go away. I mean, when's the last time you went to a travel agent or, you know, the example I'd like to give is when's the last time you went to a photo mat and actually picked up your photos. And before there's hardly a shopping mall that you could go by without a photo mat hut in the actual shopping parking lot. 
So it, a lot's going to change. And for again, for people like you and me and older, I think we'll be more resilient because we did know that world before the internet changed. But for the people that are younger and have really only grew up knowing the internet, your world's about to get rocked a little bit. And, you know, your worldview is about to get rocked. And I just, I hope we do it in a smart way. Well, I guess in the end, time will tell, right? I mean, yeah. Again, we're all witnesses to it. We control it. We can decide what we let happen and don't happen. And I will tell you two more quick anecdotes because you probably saw both of them. When I did that presentation for the firm that you mentioned, I think one of my examples was is common law marriage uh, legal in Pennsylvania. And it came back with a very confident, no, this is why there may be exceptions based upon how long you live together. And that was right, except that anybody that's been cohabitating, I'm told, since 2005, that is not true in Pennsylvania. The common law marriage is still recognized. And so it was very right, but still wrong. And another example was I circulated uh, a thank you to the firm for people that attended. And I did a uh, like a short story. I said, hey, ChatGPT, tell me a story about a lawyer that used AI irresponsibly and what happened to her. And it wrote a story about how she started off very smart about it. Then she got too into it and too, it wasn't diligent and she made bad choices. And then the state bar took away her, her attorney license. State bars don't take away attorney licenses courts do. The highest court in the state takes away attorney licenses. So it was a really interesting story that had the wrong facts in it. And those were just two quick examples of it's really convincing. If you're not paying attention, you don't double check it. You can make mistakes with it. It's, yeah, it's right there. Like it's a, it's a, it's close enough to pass, but it's still a facsimile. That's right. Which is also an archaic word anymore. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you for doing this. We managed to get through this without talking about Skynet, which I think all of us of a certain age believe that this is what's leading to go watch the Terminator series if you don't know what I'm talking about. But it is fascinating stuff. Thank you for being our expert in residence for the Law and the Family podcast for technology and data privacy. And thank you all to listening today. If you'd like to get in touch with Mark, you can find him at foxrothschild.com, where he often speaks to any number of different types of groups on these subjects. He's an excellent presenter. And if you want more information about that, I would encourage you to reach out to him and find time for him to come speak to your firm or organization. And thank you as well for listening along. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at aweems at foxrothschild.com or find me at Twitter at AaronWeemsATTY. Thank you again, and we'll talk to you next time. I'm Aaron Weems, and if you have something to share, a topic you want to hear about, or you want to keep the conversation about chat GPT or artificial intelligence going, please contact me by email at aweems at foxrothschild.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Aaron Weems, A-T-T-Y. Thank you again to Mark McCreary, and we'll be back again soon with more ideas and issues for the Pennsylvania Family Law Attorney. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash lawinthefamily. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.